Welcome to Office Baggage, where two corporate women unpack our week in business. Every week, co-hosts Ray Parent and Marcy Tweet tackle the WTF business topics you want to talk about on every rung of the business ladder. Bring your baggage. We'll We'll unpack it. This week on Office Baggage, we meet Laura Gassner-Odding, the author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. If you're ready to break through the doubt in your career and think bigger, even in a time of global crisis, Laura's tips and tricks will help you take control and be limitless. Good morning, Office Baggage listeners. It is May 7th. Thursday, May 7th. And today, once again, I've got a good flow going here. I am recording an intro and posting an episode on the same day. So happy May. Uh, I feel like singing the Justin Timberlake song, right? It's gonna be May. And I'm sitting here by myself. You might hear a little background noise. That's my hubby because I no longer care if he's on the phone when I record a podcast. So here we go. We are in it. We are ready to go this morning. It's a fascinating thing with podcasting. Ray and I have been doing this podcast for three years. I did podcasting way back 10 years ago when I ran my own company. I'm actually starting a third podcast. Stay tuned for more information on that. Um, But it still gives me butterflies to reach out to some of the incredible women that we have on this podcast and ask them to join me. Today's guest, Laura Gassner-Odding, was one of those people. I read Laura's book, Limitless, last summer. I actually read it when Ray and I and a number of our friends were out in D.C. on a hang in a pool weekend, and I read it on a floaty in a pool. And Ray and all of our friends can tell you that throughout the course of reading Laura's book, I kept pausing and going, oh my God, oh my God, this is such an incredible book. You guys all have to read this. It's so fantastic. Um, So all of my friends heard about Laura that whole weekend. And I think we've mentioned this book a few times on the podcast thus far in season three. So I was so nervous to reach out to Laura. Her book was incredible for me. She's a, a, a huge speaker coach. She's on the Today Show and, and all over media. And I thought, why would she want to come on, on this little podcast of ours? But I reached out to her. We became friends on LinkedIn in January. I told her how much I loved her book. And I reached out to her recently to come on the podcast, really in the response to the fact that I've seen a lot of career fear from my Facebook friends, my LinkedIn colleagues. If you are in a position right now where you are either laid off or furloughed, or even if you feel you're in a secure job, you're certainly worried about getting laid off, about being furloughed, about where this global pandemic will take your career And I've heard, frankly, some really bad advice during this time. I've heard people say, take any job you can, uh, throw out your, your goals, think about what you have to do right now. And the truth is, you don't have to abandon your long term goals, the things that you want for your future during a global pandemic. You can be thinking ahead, you can be finding your bliss, breaking through the doubt, as Laura said 
says, thinking bigger, being limitless. And I thought it was a great time to have Laura on this podcast to talk about her book, Limitless, and how you can still find the career you want, the life you want, even through a global pandemic, without being too Pollyanna about how much hope we all have in the next 60 days. So stick with us. Laura Gassner-Odding and my incredible conversation with her is up next. Well, I am joined today by Laura Gassner-Odding, the author of Limitless. Laura, thanks for joining us on Office Baggage. I'm incredibly excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So it's interesting. You are an author that we have actually mentioned on this podcast. I think I've recommended Limitless a number of times. So for those of our listeners who haven't um, bought the book yet, you hopefully are getting some info about it today. Limitless, how to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. Um, I have to start by gushing a little because I love this book. And I, I told you this before we started recording, but it really changed the way that I thought about my own career. And I've recommended it to other people. Ray, my podcast partner who isn't with us today, um, said the same thing. I, I always start with authors because I think it's such an interesting story of how authors come to the book. Um, as an author myself, it's often that moment where you feel like this is the book. This is, I know it's, I know it's there. I know what it's going to be. You've had a a brilliant career as a recruiter, a speaker, a coach. Why did Limitless come to you at this point in your career and what inspired you to write this book? So it's a little bit of a mangy dog story, but I'm going to tell you the story because I think there's a big lesson in the story. So, um, uh, after, um, founding and running my own executive search firm for 15 years, I sold it to the team, the women who helped me build it. And I sort of had that, I have no idea what I'm going to do next moment, but I've got a little runway from the sale. I'm going to figure it out. And um, that was in, uh, it was when Hillary was getting her, her, her presidential campaign up and running. And as you know, I worked in the Clinton White House when I was much younger. And so I was, of course, very excited to help elect the first woman president. And I've known the Clintons for a long time. And I got very deeply involved in her campaign. Now, uh, I didn't really want to push to go find some other career at that point because I had been given a lot of pressure to consider going to work inside the administration to maybe run presidential personnel. As a recruiter, somebody who deals with talent, and as somebody who has had a history with the Clintons, there's a small Venn diagram of people who fit in the middle of that, and I was one of a (laughs) handful of those people. And while it wasn't the job that I necessarily would have wanted, you know, it was a pretty exciting moment to consider. And so I didn't really spend a ton of time exploring what my next career would be, but then I was um, at a, a, a nonprofit art auction and the woman who was the MC of the night introduced me uh, to the stage and said, this is my dear friend, Laura. She dedicates her life to philanthropy because I was currently unemployed. And I had that moment <laughs> where I thought, oh my God, I can't be that person. I mean, yes, it's true. I have dedicated my life to philanthropy, but it was only part of my story. And I was like, did I just turn into like the ladies who lunch? Like what, what just happened to me? And while I don't want to put cast any shade on people who spend their, their lives volunteering and involved in philanthropy, it was part of my story. And it suddenly had become my entire stories defined by other people. Yeah. 
So I had that moment where I went, oh my God, I went home, I bought lauragassneraudding.com, the URL that you know, all of my stuff lives on now. And I just started blogging and I started writing about the things I was thinking about. And so a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, I saw your blog post. I'm the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, one of the largest TEDx's outside of Big Ted. Would you consider doing a TEDx talk on this piece that you just wrote? Wow. And I said, no way, that's terrifying. Absolutely not. And at the <laughs> moment, my then 14-year-old, he's now 17, about to be 18, was in the car next to me and he heard this call on speakerphone and he was like, hey, mom, don't you tell me I should do scary things? And don't you tell me if it doesn't challenge me, it doesn't change me? And don't you wow. tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? And I was like, <gasps> shoot. So <laughs> six weeks later, I'm on the stage, 2,600 people, Boston Opera House, big, beautiful, gilded gold walls and crystal chandeliers. And I'm giving a talk. And then that talk got some attention and that talk got some attention and that talk. And, and I got asked to do more and more talks. And then people started offering me money. And I was like, wait, tell me about this job where you give me money in exchange for meeting on the stage talking. That's interesting. And at the same time, Hillary loses. We all know how that story goes. Yeah. And so I am like, I don't have a job. I don't have a potential future job. I've got this thing where people are paying me money to get on stage and speaking. And I'm at the point where I'm noticing that the people who I'm on stage with who are getting paid what I consider to be a respectable amount of money that I could then use as an actual career had books. So I was like, hmm, I should get me one of them. Yes. That would thank make a you. lot of sense. Thank you for being honest about that. I, I feel like that happens so much that you see these almost competitors in the marketplace. I, I feel this right now in my consulting business of like, they have a book. Should I have a book? They have a podcast. Should I have a podcast? They have a, like, thank you for your honesty about that. And, and you know, not saying it came to you in a dream from, from the universe or something to that effect. Well, and so what happens <laughs> is then I call a publisher and I was like, I think I should write this book about confidence. It's the stuff that I'm talking about. How do you find your voice? How do you solve big problems? And he said, great. We love it. We'd love for you to write that. You should write it for our publishing house. But before you do that, we're actually doing a series about non-obvious thinking would you write a book about the not obvious guy to purpose doing work that matters? Yeah. Because you've spent your career doing nonprofit executive search, dedicating your life to philanthropy. <laughs> After all, you could write a book about purpose. And I was like, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure, but this was my way in to get the yeah. book deal. So I start writing the book and about six weeks into it, I'm just like fighting with the editor. Like it's just not working. A, a guidebook is like chapter one, problem, solution, chapter two, problem, mm -hmm. solution, chapter three, problem, solution, chapter four, fall asleep. And purpose doesn't fit into the guidebook format. So I call him up and I was like, listen, I think you should fire me. It's just not working. I can't write this. I'm not the writer for you. You should fire me. He said, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot too. And I agree. Wow. <laughs> and I went, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, this isn't the book for you. But I think there's a bigger idea here. And rather than you writing the guidebook, I think we should write this bigger idea and we should put it out in hardback in the spring when big idea books come out. Yeah. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> so meta moment, it wasn't until I started ignoring what I thought the book should be, right? What every other competitor has as the book they have that I could then write my own book. Because once I started writing Limitless, 
once I figured out that I didn't want to write this guidebook, but I actually want to write this thing that told people to ignore everybody else and carve their own path and live their best life, that book poured out of me in like three weeks. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so I had to stop like fighting against everyone else. So, you know, where did the book come from? The book came from me having no idea what I was doing, figuring it out, and then realizing that unless I was following my own path and doing the thing that worked for me, it'd be like organ rejection. Oh, absolutely. It's so interesting. I've heard so many authors say that same thing that when they finally got there, when they finally figured out what it was about, and it was that it was true for me as well um, 10 years ago when I wrote my book, and it, it poured out of me in a few weeks. Like, and I think that's, that's very common. So this, when you got to this limitless, you really centered a lot of the book around this concept of consonance, which is very different than, than maybe where you started with confidence or purpose. And it's a really unique concept in this world of business books. And it's funny, the MBA in me hears the word consonance and goes straight to like business strategy and consonance related to value capture, but it's a little bit different than that. So tell me and our listeners what consonance means in the context of limitless in the context of a career. Okay. So, you know, Marcy, you know, those moments when the very best of what you do, the thing you love to do is being called upon to solve a problem at hand. And it's a yes. problem for which you actually have some passion, some excitement, some joy, some interest, and you get rewarded for solving that problem in a way that is meaningful to you, whether it's karmic, financial, emotional, strategic, whatever it is. Those are the moments when you're in consonance, you're in alignment, you're in flow. It's when the what you do matches the who you are. And you're like, yes, this is what I was put on this earth to do. And so some people are like, oh, you found your calling, you found, followed your passion, any of this stuff. But the truth is each one of us have these moments where it's like, yes, this is what works, right? Everything seems to be going in the same direction. And it's not that organ rejection thing I was talking about earlier. It's, it's harmony, right? It's, it is, and we all know those moments where we feel really good about what we're doing. Those are the moments of consonance. And those are the moments when we're limitless. It's fantastic. And you break this down into four key pieces. Those pieces, I think, are, are so key to what people are looking at because we all have those moments, right? Where work, where the work day flies by, where we go home that night and we say, what a great day. Like I was really doing what I need that day, but we can never identify what the pieces are that came together around that. And you've done it. You've broken it up in calling connection, contribution, and control. So talk a little bit about without sort of giving the book away, talk a little bit about each of those pieces and why you picked those pieces to go into this overarching puzzle of consonants. Yeah. So I think to, just to, to note the first thing you said about how we go home and we're like, I'm not quite sure it was great, but I'm not quite sure why some of that's is because it changes throughout our lives. So what made it, what was great when we were 25, isn't the same as what's great when we're 20 or 35 and the same as great as we're 45. And, oh, true. And you know, part of it is because we change. So we're getting older. What matters to us is different. The people around us change. So maybe we're married, maybe we have kids, maybe we're divorced, maybe our kids are gone. Maybe we decide not to have kids, right? Whatever the, that, that may be. And then also the world around us changes. You know, I, I, when the book first came out, I did like 150 podcasts and TV interviews and people kept asking me this question of what advice would you give your 22 year old self? And I was like, my 22 year old self who's listening to a podcast that was recorded over the internet 
on my mobile phone. <laughs> like those three things didn't exist when I was 22. So even if I yes. did know what made me happy, then the world around me has changed so much that how would I know? So the four elements of consonants, as you said, are calling, connection, contribution, and control. And at every age and at every life stage, we're gonna want and need different amounts of these to put us in consonants. And we have to give ourselves the grace for those things to change. So they are calling. And calling isn't this like big lofty Mother Teresa feeding the lepers in India type thing. It is simply the gravitational force that gets you out of bed in the morning. So what is it that you care about? Is it a business that you want to build? Is it a family that you want to nurture? Is it a bottom line that you want to grow? It is, is, is it a cause that you want to serve? If you're an entrepreneur, maybe it's you. Maybe it's the thing that you're creating. So what is that calling, that thing that you care about, the thing that you want to serve? The second is connection. And connection answers that question if you didn't go to work today, if you didn't show up in front of your Zoom today, if you didn't, you know, would people notice? Would anybody care? Is the work that you're doing on a daily basis actually connecting to that calling that you want to serve? The third piece is contribution. So if connection is all about the work, contribution is really about you. And it answers the question of how does this work, this brand, this job, this paycheck allow you to um, have the lifestyle that you that you want to have the flexibility that you need to uh, have the career trajectory that you desire to manifest the values you want on a daily basis. How does this work can contribute to the to the life that you want to have in in total? And then the last piece is control. And control is really you know how much personal agency do you actually have to affect the way that your work connects to that calling? and how it contributes to your life. So do you have a say on the teams to which you're assigned, the projects that you um, get, get put on, uh, the, uh, your earnings, your opportunity for advancement, you know, your opportunity for, uh, you know, are you able to get yourself on the project that is being seen by the person who's making the decision about who gets the next promotion, right? Like how much control do you actually have or are you just in the, the passenger seat forever? And, you know, when I was, 22 and dropping out of law school to join that first Clinton campaign, what I wanted in my life in terms of calling, connection, contribution, and control was a whole lot different than when I sold my company and joined that next Clinton campaign. So the first one, I was getting coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. So, right. you know, I had no control whatsoever, but I had all the calling in the world. And in terms of connection, forget about it. Like there's just, you know, nothing I did mattered. I was a peon, but I knew that I had contribution because I was manifesting my values every day. And if this guy won, I could have a pretty interesting career trajectory. Fast forward 25 years and I have teenage kids, I'm married, I sit on some boards, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what, what, you know, what I'm doing with my life. Like all of that is completely different. So of course things had to connect, of course there had to be contribution. The calling was interesting, but I was really more doing it because of a sort of this professional fascination that I had at the moment. So you know, at, at, we, we all change and we all want and need different amounts of these. And I think you've seen that yourself in your own career. I have. Um, it's interesting. So, you know, the people who listen to this podcast regularly have seen both Ray and I change drastically because we started this podcast in business school. When we started this podcast and, and really when I was at the beginning of my corporate job, I, I was in my dream job. I could have never imagined myself 
wanting something different. I got to travel the world. I got to, you know, affect sustainability and corporate responsibility for one of the biggest companies on the planet. Um, I got to work with incredibly cool, smart people. I had all of it together. And as I continued to quote unquote grow in that role, and as I went back to school, what I began to realize is that I never had any control in, in that job. I didn't have it from the beginning. But at the beginning, I was a 27-year-old kid who had a job that I probably was five years too young for. And, you know, they took a chance on me. I didn't need the control, right? It was okay. They were paying me more money than I had ever made before. I was fine. And as I went through business school and the lights came on in a lot of other places, that was what I yearned for was this control. And I read your book a year after I left my corporate job. And I read it a weekend that my girlfriends and I were out at a friend's place last summer and we were in the pool and I always read in my Kindle on the pool and I would like paddle myself over and be like, listen to this, listen to this. This is exactly <laughs> what happened to me. This is exactly what it is. I lost control. I might've had the calling. I might've had the connection. I might've had the contribution. But when I realized that these frankly men were controlling my career and holding down what I could or couldn't do and telling me you should just be grateful for where you are, that's what was missing. And it's been an interesting lens to run this kind of go forward basis on for me of, do I have all of those four things? And if you're feeling this moment of a lack of confidence in your own career, which I've certainly felt since then as well, you go, okay, let's rebalance these, what's missing? Is there something here that doesn't work for me? And it's just been a, a great lens to look at happiness and, and sort of career fulfillment from. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us say yes to certain career opportunities and they seem right at the time. And then we keep doing them because, I don't know, sunk cost. Maybe we think there's something wrong with us. Maybe we think I'll be happy when I'm just working towards the end of this project, towards the next promotion, towards the next raise, towards whatever it is. And I think there are these moments, and I talk about one of them in the book, where I think there are very few moments in your career where you hold all the cards and even fewer moments when you know you do. And I had one of those moments when I got passed over for a very obvious promotion. It was like, mm -hmm. the only reason I didn't get that promotion was because I wasn't 55 years old. Like it was right. very clear that my boss saw me as the kid and not as the peer. And that was fine. He had his own things going on and he needed to have another gray hair around him. But I had been the person who had helped save the company in the previous year and a half. And when I went into his office and I was like, hey, Arnie, it would be great if you gave me a, a title change so I wasn't just associate. Because I'm on the outside world selling business and keeping this business afloat. And I look like a kid and maybe you should help me help you by making me look a little bit more senior. And he let me have it. He basically was like, ah, you don't need a title. I don't have a title. Get the hell out of my office. I was like, well, your name's on the door, right? It's exactly. Isaacson Miller. Your name is Arnie Miller, which by the way, if it's familiar to any of your readers, is because I dedicated the book to him. Not because, <laughs> not in spite, but because he really has been a major father figure and mentor to me in my life, despite the fact that he has also been the most difficult boss. I'm so glad I no longer have. <laughs> I mean, that's the, like, my, when, I, when I went to dedicate the book, I was, I was either going to say to Arnie Miller, the best boss I'm so thrilled I no longer have, 
or to Arnie Miller, who taught me to bring everything I am to everything I do. And I decided to go with the latter one, but sure. <laughs> mostly because he's in the late stages of Parkinson's and is in that like uh, that neurotic part of Parkinson's where he wouldn't he wouldn't see the humor in it, even though it, he, yeah. he knows that he's a terrible boss. But he, he basically said, you don't need a title. I don't have a title. Get the hell out of my office. And I, I realized at the time that if, unless I put my own name on my own door, I wasn't mm -hmm. going to be able to be in the position that I needed to be in. And so I had that moment of rage and I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm leaving. I don't see a future for me here. I'm leaving. It's Friday. I'll come back Monday morning and you need to tell me what my future is because right now I don't get it. And, and he, uh, when I came back on Monday morning, he was exceptionally apologetic and it was like, I'm sorry, you're right. I'm prepared to make you a vice president. I'm prepared to do this. I'm prepared to do that. Here's the raise. And all I wanted was to go from being associate to senior associate, right? But right. there are those moments where you, and, and I thought to myself, okay, great. I have the title now everything's going to be fine. And what I realized was that title didn't give me any of the control I wanted. It didn't give me any of the contribution. I, I, my work was deeply connected to the work that we were doing, my calling to want to make the world a better place. But what I realized was that my overarching calling wasn't actually making the world a better place. It was being an entrepreneur. I love building and changing and innovating and growing. And if I can make the world a better place through it, that's part of my contribution. That's how I manifest my values on a daily basis. But I thought calling was the white hat piece. And yeah. what I realized was I'm my own calling. And I encourage every woman listening to this to be their own calling because we're like the guys in the office aren't looking out for us, right? Like we are the ones exactly. that need to make sure that we're looking out for ourselves and each other. So it's an interesting time frame today as we talk during this COVID-19 crisis and everything that's happening. I think a lot of people are feeling, I know, you know, my, my friends and, and colleagues that I talk to on a daily, weekly basis, a lot of people are feeling a few things. One, scared about what's happening with their companies. What, will they have a job next week? Are they going to have to take a pay cut? There are a lot of people who have already been, been laid off or, or furloughed. It's interesting, and part of the reason I wanted to bring you on this podcast as we talk now about this is, can you still exercise control over your career? Can you still find all of these things during a time of crisis, during a time when it feels like we don't have any control over our working environment, even on, you know, we have, I have no control over whether or not I have to sit at this desk or go to a coffee shop anymore or go to my co-working space. I'm, you know, we all feel kind of a lack of agency. How do you exercise your own agency during that time and still look for all of those pieces of consonance? So I think that this is an unusual time. I think, and that's, you know, obviously an understatement of the year. Um, so I have stopped focusing on what I am, right? I am an author, I am a speaker, I am a this, I am a that. And I've been focusing more on how I wanna be. So less what I am and more how I wanna be. And I think that if I continue to be the kind of person that I wanna be in this, then once things are open up again, 
I think that there are going to be a lot more options that are out there. So how can I be? I want to um, be the kind of person who is serving my community. I want to be giving value. That doesn't mean to say I'm giving everything away for free, right? I'm about to launch an online course. I'm not giving it away for free. I'm giving it away for a whole lot less than I normally would have, right? So rather than it being a $1,000 course, it's going to be $297 and people get to bring a friend for $97, right? So that's, you know, a kinder way to still pay my bills. However, I, I think that we can be of service to our community in a way where we can give a lot of value more so than what we're charging. And I think that that's one way that I want to be. I want to be um, empathetic. I want to hear where people are. I want to listen to them deeply. I want to understand that even though we're all in the same storm, we're in different boats. And frankly, now that some of the states are opening and others aren't, we're not really in the same storm either, right? We're all in different storms and we're all in different boats. So, you know, me in the luxury of my house with my husband and my kids and the dog and being able to get groceries delivered is a whole lot different than somebody who's in an abusive relationship in a tiny apartment in the middle of a city or who's alone and dealing with depression or any of those things. So, you know, I want to be empathetic and I want to be somebody who takes the time to um, be reflective. I mean, I I have a friend, uh, Carrie Lorenz, who was the first female fighter pilot in the Navy. And she says she focuses on three things all the time. And what she's thinking right now is family, fitness, finances. She's focused on her family. She's trying to be active and stay fit every day. And she's also keeping an eye on what they're spending and what they're earning and where the money's coming and where the money's going. And she's like, and that's it. One, two, three, family, fitness, finances. So I've really been thinking a lot about being in that space where I'm not so much worried about what my title is going to be afterwards, but thinking about how I can um, be the kind of person that I want to be right now, because here's what I've learned. I've learned over the years of being an entrepreneur that future money is worth a lot more than current money, right? So future money is worth more than current money. Any, you know this, right? Anything you do, anytime you invest, anytime you build and you get a degree and you invest in yourself and you, and, you, and you spend more time planning, the rewards are always bigger. And so if I can spend time right now giving more away from my course or being on more podcasts or you know, being out in the world more, I know that there will be, I'm not going to make as much current money for that, but there will be lots of opportunity for current money later because more people will know about me. I'll have more followers. I'll have a bigger platform. And then when Mm -hmm. I do launch a thing for sale later, there'll be more potential customers. And so if future money is always worth more than current money, then right now in the midst of COVID, when there's no current money, certainly Mm -hmm. future money is worth way more than current money. So I'm not trying to do the land grab of my thousand dollar course. It's available for you right now for 20 bucks. Because I think that cheapens me. I think it cheapens us. I think it cheapens the work that I've done. And also, I think it's a land grab for right now, as opposed to, let me give you more of this. Let me build a Facebook community around it. Let me engage with people. Let me get online every day at 10 a.m. You know, with my people and every day at, you know, every Friday at noon in the course group. And then I have engagement with those people for later. So for people that are trying to figure out, well, what do I do? And how do I figure out time now? I would think, what's the business you want to be in a year from now? Who do you want to be a year from now? What do you want to be a year from now? And then how would that person be acting now today in order to be there later? Right. You talk about this a little bit in the book and I just, I I pulled up the quote because I think it's exactly 
on the, the line of what you're saying. You say the ones who focused on the daily tasks, the action felt overscheduled and stressed. So many felt unfulfilled because the root cause problem never went away. On the contrary, the ones who focus on results, the impact felt consonants because they could see the connection between the work and the long-term problems they were trying to solve. And I think that's for, it's what I'm trying to do right now too. And, and I have a couple of great mentors who said, you know, take this time and start conversations. Don't even think about business development. Talk to cool people you want to meet that you think will be interested. And a year from now, that cool person you talk to now might bring you business. And that's, I love that future money is better than current money. It's worth more. Future money worth is more. worth more than current money. And I think that's right. I, you know, I think that I am spending this time showing up in my community. So I'm in a writing community of people. I'm in a speaking community of people. I'm in my own limitless community. So every day at 10 o'clock Eastern, I show up for my limitless community. Every day at 11, I show up on a Zoom call with a bunch of writers that I know. And we literally turn the Zoom on. We talk for a couple of minutes before we start about what we're going to write about that day. We write Pomodoro method for 25 minutes, jump in and talk a little bit more about what we did and what the next 25 minutes is going to be do the next 25 minutes and then chat again. And it's an hour and we do it every weekday. And then at noon, I do like a little coffee clatch with my speaker friends. And we just basically be like, oh, you look really good today. What camera are you using? And how's your lighting going? And you sound <laughs> great. And it's like, it's like AV tech hour. So from 10, 11 and 12, I have my three communities. And that means I have to wake up in the morning, exercise, do whatever I'm going to do. So I'm camera ready, which I'm not today. <laughs> so I'm camera ready by 10 a.m. for my group. Mm -hmm. And then I have 10, 11, 12. And then after that, that's when I have, um, you know, my, my um, conversations with potential clients or executive coaching clients, or I do some of the, you know, I, that's when I start looking at my email inbox. And so my day really has created structure around, around showing up in the communities that I care about that are also figuring out um, how do I get to be in the business I want to be in a year from now. Yeah, absolutely. So I do want to switch gears because I know um, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast, because I've been in nonprofit and, and corporate responsibility for my entire career, work in this purpose and social impact um, area. And you do talk in the book because you've had that background in, in philanthropy and in purpose about the purpose fallacy. So talk about this. And, and I love one of the quotes that I wrote down from the book is this false flag that service can only be real when it comes with heaping helpings of martyrdom. <laughs> and I, I think it's so true. And, and we hear so often this sense of follow your passion, do what you're passionate about. And it's funny, having gone through business school, I had a number of my, my sort of corporate friends say, I just want to quit my job and go work for a nonprofit. Because that's and, easier. Exactly. <laughs> and it's so interesting. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about people who are in that kind of purpose work and, and the find your passion um, monikers that come with so much of it and, and why it just doesn't fulfill us. Well, so let's first just get rid of the find your passion nonsense, right? Yes. Find your passion. I call the follow your passion one of the four horsemen of the success apocalypse in my <laughs> book. There's work-life balance, and there's um, and there's 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 follow your passion, and there's I'll be happy when, and then there's purpose, right? And this is sort of the 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 follow your passion and the purpose are sort of intertwined in the question that you asked me. But the problem with follow your passion, and we've all seen her, we've all seen the Instagram meme of like the girl with the perfectly waving flaxen hair and the yes. you know boho chic, and she's staring out onto a 
a, a beach or a sunset or Coachella or something, and she's imploring us to follow your passion. And the problem that I have with follow your passion is that I think that it is the career advice of the live, love, laugh tattoo. I think it is yeah. ridiculous because it is actually not a destination. It's not even a roadmap, but the idea of following your passion says, if you just follow your passion, everything's going to be hunky-dory, sister. And the truth is that when you follow your passion and the minute something goes wrong, the minute it gets hard, the minute you make a mistake, the minute you fail, you go, oh, I guess that wasn't my fa- my passion. And then you feel badly about yourself. And you re- then you think, well, I guess I have to do something different. And the truth is, Anytime we do anything, look, look, here's the question. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? That's your passion. No, it's not. <laughs> what would you do if you knew for sure you would fail? Right. And yet you would do it over and over and over until you got it right. Because that's your passion, right? It's mm. not the getting up and the, the succeeding. It's the falling down and the picking yourself back up and the learning and the innovating and the changing. And it's the fulcrum that is in, fail, in, in, um, in, in failure, not the finale. So don't follow your passion. Invest in your passion. And by the way, stop taking advice from girls in flower crowns anyway, because that's just nonsense. <laughs> So, okay. So we've gotten this rid of the been, whole- It's funny. This has been a theme. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with um, these two wonderful women who run this uh, PR agency called The Obedient Agency. And we were talking about how frustrating it is to see all these memes from a lot of people who run like multi-level marketing businesses for like three things that can make you money when you're sleeping. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Like- oh. you- money when you're working really fucking hard. Right. You know how you make <laughs> money when you're, you're sleeping? Because yeah. when you were awake, you were doing these three things. Right? It's like, <laughs> my God. It's ridiculous. So let's yeah. get rid of the follow your passion. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So we can still work in areas that are passion, but that passion doesn't necessarily have to be tied to purpose. This mm-hmm. like overwhelming you know, sacrificing everything, literally taking the shirt off your back, giving it to somebody else so that you can take a photo of yourself surrounded by little, you know, children in some third world country on your Facebook profile, right? Like that makes me crazy. And this idea that if you're not doing something like that, your work has no purpose whatsoever and you're just pushing paper is nonsense. Like your purpose, your purpose doesn't have to have lofty or higher in front of it. Your purpose literally just has to be your purpose. Your purpose could be curing cancer. Awesome. Have at it. Your purpose could be building your own company. Awesome. Have at it. Your purpose could be nurturing a family and staying at home with them and dedicating your life to philanthropy. Awesome. Have at it. But your purpose could be buying a Maserati in a beach house. And if you were put on this earth because what you want to do is buy a Maserati in a beach house, I say more power to you. Keep my phone number. I'm a great house guest. But I am, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with the world of purpose shaming. And I feel like I, as somebody who spent 20 years doing executive search for nonprofits specifically, I feel like I'm an unimpeachable source on the subject. You can do well and do good. You can do good and do well. There are people who make lots of money in the nonprofit sector. There are people who make lots of good who work in the for-profit sector. You just have to figure out your purpose. And let's just stop God, stop giving votes to people in our lives who shouldn't even have voices, especially those ladies in their flower crowns who are making money with their coconut oil in their sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. I love it. I'm so glad we talked about this. It's interesting though. Um, 
I know that nonprofit recruiting is not what you do now, but the interesting thing that I, I hear so many of my my people who have stayed in in nonprofit, I left and went to corporate, and and now uh, you know run my own business and and work with mostly corporate clients. But for people who've stayed in nonprofit, there's this thing that happens for executive director and CEO searches, right, where they go pull from the corporate, mm-hmm. and they love hiring people who have business experience and like give up their you know, whatever it is, $500,000, million dollar corporate salary to come, you know, slum it in nonprofit for 200 grand or whatever. that. <laughs> yeah. And it's very frustrating for the people who've grown their lives there and are ready to ascend. I have a number of friends who are looking for that CEO jump who can't get it because the corporate sector people are coming in using that purpose fallacy to say, I'm, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. It's fascinating for people who spent their life in purpose to figure out how to get up over that. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to get up over that is to is to start raising money, right? I mean, there are a lot of people. So my first book that I wrote was actually about transitioning from corporate yeah. to nonprofit work. And there is literally a line in the book where I'm like, if you show up in my office, this is back when I was still a headhunter. And I was like, if you show up in my office and you tell me that the reason that you want to come work in a nonprofit is because you want to give back, I'm going to tell you to get out your checkbook and write a check. That's right. how you can give back, write a check. But the thing that I would tell anybody, either in the for-profit or the nonprofit sector who is looking for an executive director position is start raising money. You can be the best program director, assess, you know, designer, implementer, assessor in the world. You can be amazing at the, you know, the finances, but if you're not raising money, that's, that's it. That's, that's what executive directors need to do. And if you don't yep. love raising money, then go be a program director at a bigger nonprofit where you're running bigger program but don't think you want to, don't run the organization because that job is a 20 hour a day, six day a week fundraising job. Absolutely. Oh, that's so true. And it's interesting. It's, um, you know, you come from the political world as well. <laughs> Which is also a see, fundraising job. <laughs> well, that's the same thing. You see people online, you know, posting meme after meme after meme about what's going on in the world. And it's like, okay, how many races in states that you don't live in for women or people of color have you donated to this year? Even if it's 10 bucks, 20 bucks, $50, what can you give to those, those sort of big races, you know, put your, also, put your money where your mouth is. Also, and by the way, for any of your listeners right now who are thinking, Mm, it probably doesn't really matter. Maybe I live in a blue district. Maybe I live in a red district, whatever it is, whatever your politics are. I want you to think about this. The way that candidates raise money is by going out and pressing the flesh and talking to people and standing in front and eating, you know, 8 billion corn dogs and a bunch of fried butter and all the rest of the stuff that they're (laughs) supposed to do, which they can't do now. So the candidates who are in office, who have access, who have privilege, who have, you know, uh, war chests, who have all of that, have such a bigger advantage than even they normally have. So if you don't like what the current state of Congress looks like, and you want more women, more people of color, more LGBTQ, more people who don't look like the traditional straight white men, those are the candidates who normally have a harder time raising money. So if you think about the candidates in power who are already having more advantage and the ones that are, who are already disadvantaged and you push that Delta even farther, you push them even farther apart, find a woman, find a person of color, find an LGBTQ candidate, find somebody who doesn't look like you and give them money. I don't care where you live. I don't care where they live. Because the truth is, a senator is a senator is a senator when it comes exactly. to making policy, when it comes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, it's all the marbles. Yeah. And I think it's, a, I mean, for people, you know, like 
depending on where your politics are, but you know, I live in a blue state and um, my senators are safe and they're doing their thing. I'm going to go give my money somewhere else this time. Like it's yeah. just the, but the you know, right I live, listen, in. I live in, I live in Joe Kennedy's district. We are the yeah. bluest district in yeah. Massachusetts. We're the bluest district in the, the country. We are the safest blue seat ever. And yet I'm the finance chair for a woman who's running for office. There are five people who are running. Three of them are friends of mine, but this woman literally has worked for Planned Parenthood. She hasn't just worked on behalf of choice. She's worked awesome. for Planned Parenthood. And that's an issue about which I care deeply. So I'm the finance chair in this ridiculous time in, on, on a campaign <laughs> for a super blue seat that's going to stay blue no matter what. And still, you just got to figure out what matters to you and then find mm-hmm. a candidate somewhere who's dealing with that and send them a little money, a dollar, yep. $12, $18, $2,800, whatever. It makes a big difference especially in small races. And those are feeders for the big races. We don't get women into the Senate until we get women into local office, state office, all of the feeder districts that get us there. And Facebook ads, Instagram ads cost money. Media costs money. If you can't go out there and eat a corn dog and press the flesh, you got to have media. So that costs money. So, you know, we, we can all rise together apart, <laughs> but we all have to do it together. I know. I absolutely agree. It's, it's funny. A lot our, our podcast people know this, that I always joke that it's like my family, my friends, the Clintons. So I'm, I'm in awe of the fact that you worked, worked for them. I have my Hillary book on my desk and all of, you know, I'm a big fan. So there she is. You've got your Hillary, Hillary doll. I love her. I love her. So I want to end with something fun because you and I have something else really fun in common um, that most people don't. And that is a deep love and affinity for more than just Hillary, Dolly Parton. Oh my God. I love Dolly Parton. <laughs> I, I dedicated my book to Dolly Parton. Um, so, uh, but you quote her in your book. And I actually, I think this is a great, a great thing to end and, and sort of talk about because part of what we both love about Dolly is this idea of being truly herself and unapologetic about who she is. And I think we spend so much time in our lives and our careers trying to be who we should be and not who we really are and who our bosses want to be. So I'm, I'm curious for you as you've gone through this journey of from owning your own firm to being a speaker, being a writer, being an author, how do you advise your, your clients, your, your groups, the people that you're with to sort of give up what we should be and authentically show up as ourselves? So it's very scary to do that. It's very scary to do that. And yet we've all had those moments where we have been ourselves and we've flown our freak flags and it's worked out, right? We've been like, oh, okay, awesome. So Dolly Parton says, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. And can you think of anybody on this planet who does, who is more herself and does it on purpose more than Dolly Parton? I mean, we are, my, my, my younger son and I are, are huge fans of RuPaul's Drag Race. And she was just like, (laughs) she was just like a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. And she was like, you know, if I were born a man, I'd probably be a drag queen and I'm probably a drag queen anyway. And you look at her and you're like, yeah, you're probably a drag queen. So she shows up with like the jewels and the wigs and the whatever and the nails and all this stuff. And she's just unapologetically her. But imagine her on stage at the Metropolitan Opera in Manhattan. It would be ridiculous, right? Put Pavarotti on the stage at the Grand Old Opera. It'd be ridiculous. So each one of us has a voice. Each one of us has a fundamental state of who we are more at our very best. I talk about in the book as your fundamental state of leadership. This moment when you're like firing on all cylinders. You are just, you're kicking ass. You're taking names. 
or maybe it's a quiet moment when you're like helping a loved one through a tough situation or you're working on crunching the numbers for a presentation by yourself. There are these moments when you're like, I'm in consonance, I'm in flow, this is who I am, this is what I was put on earth to do. And what I would say to people is, it's very scary to just say, screw all of you, I'm gonna go do this thing instead. But if you can start spending more time intentionally as that person, as the one that you want to show up being, maybe joining activities, maybe asking to be on projects at work, maybe dropping some friends that are, you know, you don't really love that much in your life to spend more time with the ones that make you feel like a better version of yourself. Just these small changes that you can make so that you can not lean into everyone else's idea of what success should be, but lean into who you are at your very best. That's how you begin to find that voice because we have this idea that people are born with confidence, that you just, some people are confident and some people aren't. And I think that's nonsense. I think confidence comes from competence. So every time you put one foot in front of the other, and then again, and then again, and your pants don't light on fire, you're like, oh my God, I can do this thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Maybe I could do another thing. And maybe I could do another thing. And maybe I could do another thing. And so starting to spend more time leaning into that version of whoever your Dolly Parton is, whatever your fundamental voice is, spending more time leaning into that person will make that the person who shows up every single day. Oh, absolutely. So great. And it, it again comes back, I think I will take away and, and lead, lead with it through COVID this what I am versus how I want to be. And I think it's that same thing, showing up how you want to be in the world and, and uh, future money worth more than current money. <laughs> I'll take, I'll take these two things. I'm going to write them on a post-it note and put it on my, on my uh, monitor here because it just, I think is great um, reminder for everybody who is struggling during this time and, and for any time throughout your career. Yeah. So, so this is the last thing that I'll say. Nobody is succeeding at quarantine. <laughs> yes. And, no, and nobody <laughs> is failing at quarantine either. Yeah. There is no manual, there's no podium, there are no medals, right? There's no like rule list, there's no way to do this. However, like there are days where I am kicking ass and there are days where I am called for, you know, curled up in the corner in a fetal position. Every day is a different day. Like I mentioned, I go live every day on my Facebook group and there are days where I'm like crazy moxie inspired and there are days where I'm openly weeping. I mean, it's just, yeah. I show up however I show up and, and here's what I've learned. My tribe who loves me because they think I'm total badass loves me even more because I'm also human and I'm yeah. vulnerable. And it's okay that we show each other the messy office behind us or the, you know, the, the pile of laundry or the dog comes through and barking. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to show up as the real human version of you because nobody is succeeding and nobody's failing, but we are all getting better. And we're getting better at being super uncomfortable. Like exactly. the only way to make change in the world, in your life, in your business, in your community, in your family is to swim in the discomfort. You have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable. So all those things before COVID that you're like, I'd like to change that, but I'm kind of scared. After COVID, you're going to be like, I got this. It's easy to be uncomfortable. I know how to do that. So nobody's succeeding. Nobody's failing, but we're all getting better at being uncomfortable, which is going to make all the things we want to do after that much easier such a great place to end. I know people are going to take so much away from this conversation. So thank you so much, Laura, for being on Office Baggage with me. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. 